This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. There is a whole industry built around problematizing normal male sexual function and selling cures to fix it. A lot of men who do not have a diagnosable sexual dysfunction have been led to feel insecure about their own bodies and sexual performance. It's easy to feel like there's something wrong with you when you've never really been taught what normal actually means. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Common things people get wrong about men's bodies and how penises function, as well as things that men and their partners should know when it comes to sexual pleasure. Some of the specific topics we'll explore include whether erections are always a sign of sexual arousal, the difference between orgasm and ejaculation, whether men can have multiple orgasms, what you need to know about prostate orgasms, and so much more. I am joined today by Cam Frazier, who is a certified professional sex coach, certified sexologist, registered counselor, and registered tantric yoga teacher. As a coach, he helps men go beyond surface-level sex and into full-bodied, self-expressed, pleasure-oriented sexual experiences that are free of shame and anxiety. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. It's a new year, and I'm excited to announce a new edition of my textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality. This is the third edition of the book, and it's the biggest and best version yet. The Psychology of Human Sexuality is a comprehensive guide to the major theories and perspectives on sexuality and the vast diversity in sexual attitudes and behaviors that exist around the world. It's written from a sex-positive, biopsychosocial perspective, and it offers broad coverage of the latest research on a variety of topics, from sexual orientation, to sexual difficulties and solutions, to sex work and pornography, to attraction and intimate relationships. It's a go-to guide for the science of sex written for college students, but also approachable for anyone who simply wants to expand their sexual knowledge. Check the show notes for links on where to purchase The Psychology of Human Sexuality or find it at major book retailers. Enjoy. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Hi, Cam, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hey, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here and great to see you again. <laughs> so as a starting point, you are a professional sex coach and you do a lot of work around men and male sexuality. So what's the brief story behind how you got into this line of work? Thank you for prompting it with a brief adjective there. Um, so my brief story <laughs> is that... Uh, uh, the reason why I do work today is because I've always been interested in psychology and sexuality. And specifically, I went on a bit of a journey to overcome my own sexual issues, anywhere from you know, premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction, which were related to a lot of tension and tightness that I had in my body uh, from an injury at my lower back to 
really outsourcing a lot of my pleasure to pornography and having a pretty poor relationship with my own body in that regard as well, to not being able to communicate with the young women that I was being sexual with, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and really, yeah, overcoming a lot of that. So I was lucky enough to do some therapy and some body work and uh, a whole bunch of other fantastic healing modalities and have a transformative impact on my my life and the way that I relate to the men in my life, the way that I relate to the women in my life and the way that I related to myself. And so really the, the stuff that I do today, the stuff that I put out online and the work that I do with men is stuff that I wish someone had been doing 15 years ago when I was going through a lot of my issues as a teenager. You know, I, I was looking during my teenage years for a man who was knowledgeable and compassionate and holistic with his conversations and approach to sex. And I couldn't really find anyone. You know, I'm, I'm sure maybe I could have looked a bit harder, but the people that were loud, had the loudest voices, you know, 15 years ago were pickup artists and your other kind of like dating influences. And that, and that wasn't helpful or healthy for me to go into. So I, I you know, transitioned into to doing the work of myself through the means of therapy and body work and things like that. And so I'm really wanting to speak to a younger version of myself with this work and the stuff that really would have helped me uh, step into some more authentic masculinity and some more authentic sexuality. And, and I try and hold that space for men today. And it's been, um, it's been, a, I feel really privileged actually to be able to like see the transformative impact that holding that space for men has on, on their lives and the lives of their partners and and, and, you know, their kids as well, they become role models for the way they show up for their kids. I work with a lot of dads. You know, I feel really lucky to be able to do this work. And, and like I said, it's come from a place of my own personal journey. Thank you for sharing all of that. So we're going to talk about understanding men's bodies today, including things people often get wrong about them, and also what men and their partners need to know about male sexual pleasure. So my first question concerns something people often get wrong about the male body, which is that an erection doesn't always mean that you feel aroused or want sex. People often talk about the idea of arousal non-concordance with respect to women, but men can also experience it. So what do people need to know about arousal non-concordance in men? I guess the main thing is that a man can have an erection, but not be turned on, not desire to have sex. And in the same vein, he can also be turned on and desire to have sex, but not have an erection. And when we start to unpack that, we kind of get two ends of the spectrum I like to think about. We get maybe a, a less heavy end of the spectrum, which is a scenario which I'm sure many people, you know, they have sex with men have been in, where you're, you're in the moment and you're like wanting to have sex and you're desiring to be sexual, but there's no erection, the body maybe hasn't caught up in that moment. And so very typical strategy is decentering the penis, focusing on pleasure, slowing down, breathing, allowing for that parasympathetic nervous system to kick in so that you get the engorgement and the erection and the taking away of expectation and pressure is what's helpful in those moments. Then on the more heavier end of the spectrum is hopefully something that not a lot of people have experienced, but I know there's a significant portion of men who have experienced this, which is um, being sexually assaulted and having an erection. So that obviously didn't desire sex, didn't consent to sex, didn't want it, but the body responded and they got an erection. And the data tells us that about 20% of men who are sexually assaulted, they also ejaculate from being uh, sexually assaulted. And the 
conversations that are being had in those spaces is like a sense of betrayal of their like their body their body betrayed them and the questioning of did I actually like it was it really sexual assault if my body got an erection right did I actually enjoy it and so some really unfortunate kind of stories can come up from that as well and then that uh, lends kind of credence I suppose to the myth that men can't be sexually assaulted or that like it's not something that, that, that they experience so those are like the two ends of the spectrum like I said one's a bit heavier one's a bit more every day, but it's the root of both of those is that arousal and concordance piece and, and something we really need to be mindful of. Yeah, I think it's such an important point that physiological arousal and subjective arousal are two very different things. And there are all kinds of reasons why you might have an erection but not feel aroused. And something I think I've talked about on the show before is when people are in high states of fear, the body releases adrenaline and that increases blood flow to the genitals. And that might be why sometimes in fearful states, there's also that sexual arousal response happening with the body physiologically, but you don't feel sexually aroused. So those are two different things. You know, physiological arousal often goes along with subjective psychological arousal, but they're two different things and they don't always line up in the ways that people might expect. Totally. And then there's like, there's REM related erections as well. So, you know, nighttime erections, uh, there's peak testosterone related erections as well. So morning wood, that's sometimes called, uh, I speak to a lot of my clients about quote unquote, no reason bonus so that they're maybe the head of their penis brushed up against their trousers and that kind of like stimulated and, and resulted in that like erection reflex. You know, there's so many reasons why erections happen and because we've conflated erection with arousal in the way that we think about male sexuality a lot of guys can be confused like why am i turned on right now they might not actually be turned on but they think because they're having an erection that they must be desiring to have sex and then also their partners might also think that as well and so that can cause some miscommunication it can cause some misunderstanding and so having the awareness of the difference between physiological and subjective arousal can be helpful for starting to have a bit more conversation around desire and essentially initiating sex, right? Like that's where that conversation can lead. It's like, well, I still want to have sex with you. I still you know, desire you, but maybe my erection's not there. That doesn't mean anything about you as a partner. It doesn't mean anything about how attractive I find you. It's just about like communicating that my body and my mind need to sync up a little bit more. My body needs to just catch up to where I'm at mentally. Yeah, those are all really important points. Now, another common misconception is that ejaculation and orgasm are the same thing. And I get why people tend to think that, right? Because those things usually go together. And if you watch porn, there's always going to be ejaculation at the point of orgasm. But the truth is that these are also different processes. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so ejaculation and orgasm are two separate physiological processes and they happen almost simultaneously. Uh, what I will get men to do is really tune into their experience of orgasm and ejaculation, or you might call ejaculatory orgasm, and pay attention like really closely and you might notice that your orgasm actually happens just before you ejaculate. So you will start having the orgasmic sensations and then from that, then the ejaculation will come. And so that's like the first little light bulb moment that many men have of, oh, these are actually two separate things. They just happen really, really close to one another. But for the sake of simplicity, let's say, orgasm is a function of the parasympathetic nervous system and 
ejaculation is a function of the sympathetic nervous system. And that's not entirely accurate. Of course, it's this beautiful dance between those two branches and a bunch of other things. But for the sake of oversimplifying it, that's, that's a good way to think about it. Uh, so one of the things that I'll suggest to men who want to start exploring this is you know, if ejaculation is a sympathetic response and oftentimes when you start to look at all the characteristics of an ejaculation, the tension in and around the hips and the pelvis and the squeezing and the tightening that happens there. Now, oftentimes a lot of men tell me that they hold their breath when they ejaculate as well uh, or their breath goes up into their chest and they breathe quite shallowly and quite quickly. The flushing and the, the high temperature that can happen and the elevated heart rate a lot of those are sympathetic nervous system activation characteristics, right? Like if you were having a, I often joke, yeah, if you're having an, an anxiety attack, the tension, the tightness, the elevated heart rate, the temperature increase, ejaculation is like a pleasurable anxiety attack, right? It has a lot of those similar sympathetic nervous system activation characteristics. So if you're wanting to explore the separation of ejaculation and orgasm, and like I said before, if orgasm is a function of the parasympathetic nervous system, then we've got to do all the opposite things that happen when you ejaculate. So rather than tightening up and tensing and contracting, see if you can relax and release that tension from the muscles and you know, slow down, breathing deeply rather than breathing shallowly, you know, allowing that heart rate to slow and exploring the pleasure that comes from that. And, and that's a very, like I said, oversimplified way of starting to explore the difference between those two experiences, the way that the sympathetic nervous system shows up in the sexual space and the way that the parasympathetic system shows up. Uh, and that can give you a little bit of more distance between the orgasm and the ejaculation. And then there's you know, obviously some really interesting conversations to be had about like what even is an orgasm, right? And I, I like to quote some research here, which is that there's 27 different clinical definitions of orgasm. And depending on who you ask, uh, you'll get a different definition, right? So you might ask a cardiologist and they'll tell you that it's the elevated heart rate. You might ask an endocrinologist, they might tell you it's the secretion of certain hormones. Uh, a neurologist might say it's a specific part of the nervous system or neurotransmitters being released. Physiologist might say it's the contraction of the muscles. Psychologist might say that it's the subjective experience of a heightened state of pleasure. A sexologist might say it's a beautiful combination of all of those, you know, like there's there's all these different ways of thinking about orgasm and beyond that, I like to reframe it as rather than being this peak transient experience, you know, can we think of it as this beautiful orgasmic state that we can be in where everything in that height, the state of pleasure is orgasmic for us rather than this fleeting experience. So yeah, there's um, some things to do there like physically to help distinguish between orgasm and ejaculation as two separate physiological processes. And then there's also some things to do with regards to reframing your experience of orgasm. So that gives you more opportunity to explore pleasure in those heightened states of arousal, right? Like that's that's really the the purpose of why I teach about that and, and passionate about educating it because it, it adds variability and diversity to your experience rather than just going, well, I just come and that's it. And that's that's often a story that's perpetuated by you know, not only mainstream ways of talking about male sexuality, but also a lot of research is just focused on like, ejaculation and men's experiences of either ejaculating or not, right? And, and if you don't, then something's wrong. You, you're labeled with a, a dysfunction for the most part. And I think like there's this story that male sexuality is like simple, linear, straightforward, ends in an ejaculation and anything that deviates from that is considered dysfunctional. I don't think that's serving men specifically, but people in general when we talk about male sexuality. 
Yeah. So when it comes to something like orgasm, your experiences with it can be highly variable and diverse. It's not always the same across situations. And also different people might be labeling different things as orgasm, right? Uh, That's a point we've talked about previously on the show. Sexual psychophysiologists have found that for some people, for some women in particular, when they are at the point of orgasm, some of them are showing contractions in the genital region and reporting the experience of orgasm. Some of them are not showing those genital contractions, but they're reporting orgasm. So different people can be labeling different things and different experiences as orgasm. Now, on that subject of orgasm, another common misconception is that men are unable to be multiply orgasmic. The male orgasm is often seen as this one-and-done kind of thing. And longtime listeners of this show may recall that I've talked about my own experiences with multiple orgasms, so we know the one-and-done thing just isn't true. So what can you tell us, Cam, about multiple orgasms in men, and are there any ways that men can learn to be multiply orgasmic if this is something they've never experienced before? Yes, this is a great question, Justin, and I love that you've shared about your own experience of multiple orgasms, and uh, I often share on my own podcast about my experiences being multi-orgasmic, and um, I think that's a really valuable thing to do is like share experiences like that and get it a bit more out there, so uh, I'm appreciative of that. And yeah, so one of the things that I often talk about with regards to multiple orgasms is um, prostate orgasms, for example, just because of the way that the prostate is innovated, it very often doesn't trigger the ejaculatory reflex because the prostate you know, is innervated by predominantly the hypogastric nerve, which is part of the parasympathetic nervous system the way that I understand it. And so uh, by stimulating the prostate, yes, sometimes there can be an ejaculation incorporated if you're also stimulating the genitals and the nerve that's responsible for that response is the pedendal nerve. But if you're stimulating the prostate without, let's say, the same level of genital stimulation, penile stimulation, then you can experience an orgasm through the prostate that doesn't have an ejaculation associated with it, which doesn't enter you into a refractory period, uh, which means that you can have another prostate orgasm uh, and then another one and another one until you feel like you're tired or you just want to stop. And the other point around prostate orgasms, again, because they're the, the way that the nervous system innovates the prostate, is they feel very different as well. And again, there's what you so beautifully shared, the variability of the different types of orgasms that we can have. And even within this quote unquote same type of orgasm, it feels very differently for different people. So I've spoken to many guys about their experience of prostate orgasm. And you know, I, I share my personal experience is that I feel it very much across my face and across the bridge of my nose. And I feel tingling in my hands. Uh, but other men have spoken to me about their experience of feeling it in their chest and, and in their abdominal muscles. Or one man was talking to me about like feeling it, this pleasure rush up the back of his spine and, and into the, the back of his neck. Uh, so there's this more full body experience is, is the commonality there rather than maybe being specifically and locally confined to the genitals, which is what happens very commonly for an ejaculatory orgasm or like a you know penile stimulation orgasm. So that's like one way that I teach men how to become multi-orgasmic is through learning how to have prostate orgasms. Um, and that's a whole process. I don't just say to men on the first call that they need to be sticking something up their ass. That's you know not the approach, <laughs> but a lot of guys try and rush to that. Uh, I've got a whole protocol around it. But then, you know, there's other ways of, of exploring orgasm through when I was sharing before, kind of disentangling the ejaculation and the orgasm experience. Um, and there's some practices around that. You can get real esoteric with it if you want and go down the whole Tantra Taoist practices pathway. And I've done a bit of that myself, so I'm familiar with those. 
and you can get a bit more sex bod with it, the sexological bodywork approach and, and be a bit more like, you know, dialed in and practical with, with specific techniques and things like that. So there are strategies out there and there's plenty of people kind of talking about it online. You, you just kind of kind of find it. But I don't see a lot of it in the research, right? And that's what I think is really fascinating to me as like a bit of a sex nerd is the dearth of male multiple orgasm studies out there. And I think like there's only 16 to date from what I recall. And some of them are like very dated and very small. And so what I'm really interested in is like getting more men to like speak qualitatively about their experiences and like how there is so much variability in their experience of orgasm and, and pleasure to, again, dispel that myth uh, or that stereotype that men are just only having this five second sticky white crotch sneeze and then they're done because there's so much more that's that's available to them. And I think that's a really beautiful part of like the lived experience of being a human is that we are capable of multiple experiences of pleasure. Yeah, and I can vouch for the literature on multiple orgasms in men being very small because I've had to scour it myself for my textbook and for other writings that I've done. I actually have a book on my shelf behind me called Any Man Can. I think it was published in 1986, and it's a book about how men can learn to be multiply orgasmic. And so, you know, this isn't a new idea, but it's just this very small literature, and a lot of the work is kind of old at this point. But I feel like it's something that would be worth researching more because, you know, we talk a lot on this show about the orgasm gap and how heterosexual men orgasm at a much higher rate than heterosexual women during partnered encounters. Well, if guys could learn to be multiply orgasmic, maybe we could drop that idea that when the male orgasm happens, that sex is over, right? So there are some practical implications of exploring this further in the research. Now, something men often get wrong about their own bodies is that they think they have a sexual dysfunction when they really don't. They've self-diagnosed and they believe there's something wrong with them when in fact everything is working exactly as it should. But they think there's a problem because they don't really know what's normal for their body. So what are some examples of common problems that your clients have approached you with that aren't really problems, they're just perceptual problems? Oh man, I'm so glad you asked this question and that we're having this conversation because I get guys every day reach out to me with a self-diagnosis or a self-label of premature ejaculation, for example. And I'm familiar with the DSM criterion for premature ejaculation. And and I don't say that to them, but I do a screening kind of like by asking them a few questions and they're not clinically diagnosable with PE, but they have an expectation about what men should look like in the bedroom or how long they should last. And we can speak about maybe where those expectations come from. It could be pornography, it could be their mates, it could be general media, it could be anywhere. But I think there's a language issue here, right? Because we don't have a lot of language to talk about our sexual experiences. We only really have diagnostic criteria, right? To speak about our, our experiences. So a lot of guys, that's the language that they use is like, I've got premature ejaculation because they don't have the language or the communication skills or the vocabulary to talk about like, I don't have sex for long enough and it's distressing for my partner and I, I come quicker than I would like to and, and you know, being able to like elaborate on their personal experience, they just go, this is my problem. And I think one of the reasons why that is, is because we've kind of, this is, I think really true for male sexuality specifically is like, we've created a approach to male sexuality, which is like, here's the thing to fix that. Here's the pill to fix that specifically. And you know, I don't want to get conspiratorial around big pharma, but like 
very often the approach is like, here's a low dose SSRI to treat your um, premature ejaculation, or here's a PDE5 inhibitor like Viagra or Cialis to treat your erection issues. You know, here's the thing to fix your broken body. It's like putting this input in. And I mean, this is my observation, but it's not my idea. Like there's been some really valuable like feminist critiques of like male sexual dysfunction treatments uh, over the last kind of 40 years, which is where this kind of like thought thread comes from. And I think it's a really valuable critique because yeah, we are treating like, and a lot of guys buy into this as well, but treating male bodies as machines and then, you know, treating issues like their issues of hydraulics, not of psychology or, or sex education or perceptions. And so the treatment then becomes like, okay, this part of your body is broken. Here's the correct thing to fix it. Here's the input that we're putting so that the body functions properly again. And I hear the term dysfunction. And the first thing I, I think of is malfunctioning, like a robot that's malfunctioning. Uh, and I often think that's the way that we think about male bodies and male sexuality. So, you know, I get guys similarly, Justin, who say I've got erectile dysfunction. I'll query them again with the back of my mind, thinking about the diagnostic criteria and going, well, actually they, they don't have clinical, you know, erectile dysfunction. They, could, they wouldn't be diagnosed with that if they went and saw a sex therapist or someone who was using the DSM or the ICD. And so again, the language conversation, Chris Donahue has this really beautiful language, which is erectile disappointment, not erectile dysfunction. And I think that's great in terms of like starting to get guys to think more about their perceptions of erections and what their penis should or shouldn't do. I often joke with guys that like even on bottles of Viagra, they say, if you've got an erection that's lasting for more than a couple of hours, there's something you're wrong and you need to call a doctor. So there's this perception that their penises are supposed to look a certain way, function a certain way, and they're oftentimes unrealistic expectations. And so that's where a lot of the conversations need to be had. Same thing with libido, mate. Like a lot of guys think that they need to have a high unyielding, unwavering libido, wanting to have sex at the drop of a hat, which, you know, saying yes all the time. And that's problematic in and of itself, right? Because it lends credence to the stereotypes about men not being, they can't be sexually assaulted and things like that because they'll always say yes to sex. Um, but there's some really good research that Sarah Hunter Murray obviously quotes in her book called Not Always in the Mood. And, you know, a lot of guys think that something's wrong with them, that they're broken. And again, speaking to this idea of like, okay, you need to be fixed with a pill, a lot of guys will say to me, look, I've gone and tested my testosterone. I thought maybe I need to take testosterone supplements. You know, like the idea is, okay, something's wrong with me. Let me just input the right thing so that I start to get back to normal. I start to function properly. Uh, and so the, the medicalized or pharmacological approach to sexual dysfunction is, I think, the first port of call for a lot of men. And I, for the most part, don't think a lot of them need it. And again, I've got a selection bias because of the guys that come and speak to me. But, you know, there's a lot of guys who, who are taking... Cialis or Viagra or who are taking, you know, low dose SSRIs that have been prescribed to them by a urologist or a men's health app, you know, which I have a whole issue with as well, or they're taking testosterone, they're on TRT when they don't necessarily need it, you know, like they just thought oh, I need to get my libido back up really high. And there's the conflation of testosterone with libido. Anyway, I'm going on a bit of a ramble here, but yeah, I think that it's a really important discussion to have is like unpacking those perceptions and expectations and um, moving away from the pharmacological approach as the first port of call for people as well. I don't think it needs to be the first thing that they do. I think that, but it's convenient and I get why people do it. So anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll pull the pin on that and stop talking. <laughs> well, I think you make a lot of important points there. And I like what you said about 
the disappointments. You know, I actually added a whole section in the most recent edition of my textbook on the difference between a sexual difficulty and a sexual disappointment. You know, a sexual difficulty is a persistent, sustained, clinically diagnosable problem, whereas a sexual disappointment is something that we all experience from time to time simply because our bodies don't always do what we want them to do. Maybe we orgasm faster than we wanted to in a situation. Maybe orgasm took too long or didn't happen at all. Maybe the penis didn't get hard enough or didn't stay hard. Maybe the vagina didn't lubricate or didn't lubricate enough. You know, there are all kinds of things that can fall in this realm of sexual disappointments. And those are just the one time or very occasional thing that you might experience, and they can happen for all kinds of reasons. So I think it's really important for people to recognize that sexual disappointments happen, but they can turn into sexual difficulties if you start perseverating on them and get anxious about them happening every time you go to have sex. So it's important to have that recognition that like, hey, my body didn't do what I wanted to do in this situation. That's okay. Next time can be different. But if you start falling into that trap of then expecting the same thing to happen each time, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and then can turn into a sexual difficulty that's in need of a psychological treatment, not a physiological treatment. Yeah, I appreciate that distinction. And I'm definitely going to be getting the latest edition of your book so I can do some more reading up on that. So I appreciate the, <laughs> the inclusion of more language there. Like I said, I think that's a big part of the problem is a lot of guys are using you know, clinical diagnoses as the language to describe their sexual experience. And then that maybe becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and it hinders their capacity to like expand outwards and explore more sexual experiences and, and focus on pleasure when they're focusing on function. So yeah, I think it's, it's a really important conversation to have. Yeah, absolutely. Now, something you've talked about in your work before is how sex toys can help men to either enhance their sexual function or even to treat a sexual dysfunction. So tell us a little bit about men's sex toys and some of the potential benefits of exploring them. Because if you look at survey research, most men have never tried using a sex toy before, but what are they missing out on? Yeah, so I want to you know throw the caveat in here that like sex toys can also just be used for pleasure and they don't need to be necessarily used to help or treat a uh, dysfunction. But in the work that I do as a coach with men, Oftentimes I'll frame toys as a tool to help them on their sexual journey. One of the reasons why I do that is, as you shared, Justin, a lot of men are used to using sex toys or don't use sex toys or there is stigma around male sex toys in general. So if I can kind of bypass that a little bit and focus on like, well, this is a tool for your sexual health and your sexual journey, then there's a little bit less stigma associated with that, a little bit less taboo than if I was just to say, there's nothing wrong with toys for pleasure. That tends to get a little bit more pushback and resistance because we live in like a bit of a pleasure negative society, particularly around, you know, guys exploring their pleasure beyond just simply jerking off. So that's my little caveat I wanted to share. Um, but yeah, like one of the examples of using a sex toy to help treat a sexual difficulty or a disappointment is using a masturbatory aid, like a, a masturbation sleeve, like a silicon sleeve that's in the shape of a vulva or an anus or a mouth, something that you can put your penis inside of using some lube. And one of the ways that I'll suggest men use that is to help them learn about the types of 
stroking or depth of penetration or angle of penetration that is either really stimulating for them, which makes them come quickly compared to the type of stimulation which you know, at a certain speed or a certain angle is not so stimulating and helps them last a little bit longer. So that's really helpful for lengthening the duration of sex, practicing what it's like to penetrate because a lot of guys are using their hands to masturbate. That's fine, but it doesn't emulate penetrative sex with their partner. So rather than using their partner to practice because you know there'll be times where their partner doesn't want to, uh, and it's important to also have your own solo time to practice. They can use this masturbatory aid, uh, like this artificial vagina or anus, and move their hips and get into a position where they maybe are, are anchoring that toy to a wall or a shelf or their bed. So they're like in a position where they might be having sex, right? Like they're, you know, rather than sitting down in front of a computer screen, which is not how many people have sex. It's not a position that a lot of people have sex in. They can get into a position where maybe they would be having sex in so that the body is a bit more attuned to that position. They can become more aware of like the sensations that they feel. Then they can practice thrusting their hips and, you know, being hands-free with that device. Again, learning about the type of stimulation that is overstimulating for them and the, the type of stimulation that's not so stimulating so they can last a little bit longer. Uh, and then practice, practice breathing, practice slowing down, practice you know, moving their body so that things aren't coming to an end so quickly, which is something they might want to work on. Similarly, I might use that same device for a guy who the way that he masturbates is like it's very vigorous and it's very firm and he doesn't use any lube. And so that really rough friction-based way of stimulating his penis, again, is not able to be emulated during partnered sex. And so he's struggling to maybe feel enough pleasure or feel enough stimulation and maintain an erection during partnered sex. So the strategy of using that masturbatory aid, that artificial vagina, is to recondition himself to experience pleasure in, again, in multiple different ways, diversifying the pathways of pleasure that he's able to experience so that when he's with his partner, he's able to be tuned into the pleasure, experience the pleasure, maintain that erection and you know, have sex in a way that he wants. So those are, that's like a really practical example of the way that I'll use a, a toy like that. You know, there's other toys out there. I'm looking at my shelf next to me. I've got a whole plethora of toys that I could speak about, but mindful of going on a huge tangent. That's an example that I'll start with, I suppose. Yeah. And just one word of advice. If you're mounting a toy to the wall, <laughs> just be careful not to miss your target and accidentally thrust into the wall instead, because that can lead to other issues. So I appreciate you sharing all of this, Cam, and I look forward to continuing our conversation in the next episode where we're going to debunk some common myths about male sexuality. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and maybe take one of your workshops? Yeah, it was lovely to be here, Justin. Thank you. And the, the places people can find me is on social media at the Cam Fraser. That's F-R-A-S-E-R. I've also got a website, which is cam-fraser.com. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. And thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. No worries. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.